1918, Minnesota, Jonathan Scarborough versus Federated Mutual Insurance Company. All right, Mr. Redden, we'll hear from you first. Thank you, and may it please the court. I'm David Redden on behalf of the appellant, Jonathan Scarborough. This appeal is from an order granting summary judgment against Mr. Scarborough regarding his claim for retaliation under the Minnesota Whistleblower Act, or the MWA, against his former employer, Federated Mutual Insurance Company. Mr. Scarborough contends in this appeal that the district court did not properly apply the summary judgment standard by not considering the facts in the light most favorable to Mr. Scarborough or by granting him all reasonable inferences. And in my argument, I intend to address the following issues in the district court judge's order. First, protected conduct. Second, causal connection. And third, evidence of pretext. Mr. Scarborough contends in this litigation that he engaged in protected conduct under the MWA on three separate occasions in July. The district court acknowledged the latter two occasions, but held that Mr. Scarborough did not engage in protected conduct on July 7, 2014. And so holding the district court failed to acknowledge certain facts in the record. Now to set the stage, Mr. Scarborough and Mr. Pennington were discussing how Mr. Johnston had tried to pass off expensive picture frames as a business expense. Mr. Scarborough commented that Mr. Johnston likes things nice and fancy, and he pointed out that he could probably cut costs on conference rooms, but he liked to have his conferences at a fancy law firm. Now the district court said that that is not a report of unlawful conduct. We never contended that it was, however. Back to the conversation, Mr. Pennington responded, what are you talking about? The law firm lets Mr. Johnston use its conference rooms for free. Now here's the protected conduct. Mr. Scarborough responded that Mr. Johnston had been submitting and receiving reimbursement of supposed charges for the use of those conference rooms, and that he would look into whether they were in fact free. And that is a report of suspected theft by fraud. Now the district court admitted this detail in finding that there was no protected conduct on July 7, 2014, which is inconsistent with the summary judgment standard. The district court also erroneously rejected Mr. Scarborough's direct evidence of retaliatory intent in connection with the August 4, 2014 written warning that he was issued. Now the MWA... Sorry, Mr. Redden, before you go on to the August issue, what difference does it make whether the first incident was protected conduct if the court agreed that there were two other acts of protected conduct that took place before any adverse action? Well, thank you for the question, Judge Colleton. It makes a difference because within an hour of that conversation, Mr. Pennington contacted administration at Federated and asked for a copy of Mr. Scarborough's receipt for a company trip to the Disney Resort. And he said in his deposition that he just wanted to ensure that there were no personal charges. But testimony from multiple witnesses from Federated have confirmed that on occasion on such trips, personal charges wind up on the company credit card and that nothing is wrong so long as they're repaid. And so it's our contention that within an hour of receiving this report of wrongdoing by Mr. Scarborough's direct report, Mr. Pennington starts fishing around to see if Mr. Scarborough has... if there's something that he can pin on Mr. Scarborough. 
All so right. That's the stage yeah. for all the retaliation. Yeah. All right. Thank now, you. Go um, ahead. Your August 4th, if, if you wish. And thank you, Your Honor. Now, the NWA prohibits a broad range of retaliatory conduct, including disciplining or threatening an employee for making good faith report of an illegality. The written warning is obviously discipline, and it's also, uh, you would say, think that most employees would find written warnings to be threatening. The district court ignored the warning, that the warning identifies the investigation into Mr. Johnston's fraudulent activities no less than three times. This is the same investigation that Mr. Scarborough prompted by reporting Mr. Johnston's illegal activities. Moreover, it ignores that Mr. Scarborough's knowledge of the illegal scheme is inextricably intertwined with and not separate from Mr. Scarborough's report of the illegal scheme. And it requires no inference to see that Mr. Scarborough's report of Mr. Johnston's scheme caused the written warning. That makes it direct evidence of an adverse action, making that an issue for the jury. As to causal connection, the district court ignored substantial evidence of retaliatory animus other than timing. Uh, first, with regard to Mr. Pennington, we have uh, the evidence of Mr. Pennington's prior knowledge of Mr. Johnston's unlawful conduct. He knew that the conference rooms were free. He approved Mr. Johnston's expenses for those same conference rooms, including for at least two conferences that he attended. The judge also ignored that Mr. Pennington lied about Mr. Scarborough and, uh, and sought to cast Mr. Scarborough in the most negative light possible after Mr. Scarborough's protected conduct, all in an effort to make a case for Mr. Scarborough's termination. For example, on July 7, he uh, contacted administration and started fishing around to see if there was something he could pin on Mr. Scarborough as it related to personal expenses on the corporate card. After Mr. Scarborough's protected reports on July 7 and July 14, Mr. Pennington alleged that Mr. Scarborough had bad motives in reporting Mr. Johnston's scheme, that he wanted to nail him to the wall. Uh, this is in an email dated July 25 of 2014. In that same email, Mr. Pennington wrote that Mr. Johnston's scheme started on July of 2012, which he claimed was the time that Scarborough started as Mr. Johnston's <coughs> manager. But that's irrefutably false. It started before July 2012, and it started when Mr. Pennington was Mr. Johnston's manager. In that same July 25th email, Mr. Pennington falsely reported that Mr. Scarborough had, had expressly told Mr. Braxton Weaver to talk to Mr. Johnson about using those conference rooms to put extra money in his pocket. Mr. Weaver testified that Mr. Scarborough said no such thing. On August 4 of 2014, after Mr. Scarborough's protected conduct on July 30th, Mr. Pennington excitedly texted Mr. Kerr and said, uh, that Mr. Scarborough had been gossiping with others at Federated and that he'd been talking to Mr. Johnston's super or to his direct reports. And in this text message, he says, this is unbelievable and claims that he predicted it in a prior conversation with Mr. Kerr. And then importantly, he says, we might have something here, which strongly suggests that they were looking for something here, even hoping for something to justify Mr. Scarborough's termination. Also on August 4 of 2014, Mr. Pennington speculated in an email to Mr. Kerr that Mr. Scarborough would not have repaid the personal expenses on the company credit card uh, were it not for the issues with Mr. Johnston's expenses. But there is zero evidence to support that speculation. Finally, on August 6, 2014, just prior to the decision to demote Mr. Scarborough, Mr. Pennington sent Mr. Kerr a text message advocating 
asking for his dismissal and bragging about his plan to replace Mr. Scarborough. So there's significant evidence of retaliatory animus. As to Mr. Kerr, on July 27, 2014, Mr. Scarborough emailed him and asked to speak with him about these allegations relating to his integrity and character as a result of his report of Mr. Johnston's scheme. Mr. Kerr was required by Federated's policies to do something about that, to look into it, to escalate the issue. He did nothing. On July 30th of 2014, Mr. Kerr interrogated Mr. Scarborough about various issues, and Mr. Kerr admitted in his deposition that he was upset about the meeting because Mr. Scarborough had an explanation for each of these issues that Mr. Kerr had raised. Now, why would Mr. Kerr be upset about that? Well, the obvious inference here is that he was hoping but failed to catch Mr. Scarborough in misconduct. Now, so there's substantial evidence of retaliatory animus besides just timing. The judge also ignored substantial evidence of pretext. Regarding the written warning, the district court held that Mr. Kerr and Mr. Pennington obvious or honestly believed Mr. Scarborough was complicit in Mr. Johnston's scheme, but it is our position that that is a fact issue for a jury. As a facial matter, it is absurd to think that Mr. Scarborough would knowingly enable Mr. Johnston's fraud for upwards of two years, even though, according to Mr. Pennington, the two did not get along, but then suddenly report it, you know, two years in and implicate himself in the process. And that alone makes it a fact issue for the jury because the proposition is just absurd. And then there's Mr. Pennington claiming that he had told Mr. Scarborough multiple times in the past that the conference rooms were free. Now, that's obviously suspect in light of the evidence of Mr. Pennington's complicity in Mr. Johnston's scheme. Next, you've got Mr. Johnston claiming that Mr. Scarborough knew the whole time. But Mr. Johnston is, of course, the guy who is an admitted liar and thief, and he had an obvious axe to grind with Mr. Scarborough for disclosing his little scheme. Um, and so, finally, uh, Mr. Weaver, on close inspection of his deposition testimony, did not tell Mr. Pennington or Mr. Kerr anything that would support Mr. Scarborough having prior knowledge. In fact, Mr. Kerr's own notes from his follow-up meeting with Mr. Weaver say, and I quote, no evidence or proof. Now, under Eighth Circuit precedent, the honest belief doctrine only comes into play when it's supported by evidence of a reasonably informed and considered decision. A jury could easily find that this was not a reasonably informed and considered decision, and there was no honest belief. It is thus an issue for the jury. Now, the judge also cited what it called intervening events, including those personal charges on the company credit card, so these cruise referral credits, not using corporate travel, and then held that these intervening events negated any causal connection. But in doing so, the judge ignored uncontroverted evidence from Federated's own witnesses, including Mr. Kerr and Mr. Pennington. And Mr. Scarborough didn't do anything wrong in connection with any of these things. The, these things that he was doing were not wrong. There was no policy and other people did it. They weren't punished. That makes it evidence of pretext. And finally, regarding the demotion, the district court uh, pointed to Mr. Scarborough contacting Mr. Johnston's direct reports. But as we pointed out to the court, um, the you know, Mr. Kerr didn't act upset about it. Uh, Mr. Pennington later testified that there was nothing wrong with him doing it, that it made total sense. Uh, Mr. Jo Scarborough supposedly gossiping about Mr. Johnston's situation was only supported by Johnston, the, the guy with the axe to grind against Mr. Scarborough for reporting his scheme. 
No follow-up investigation was done. And in fact, Mr. Kerr testified in his deposition that he didn't know whether the accusation was true and that he didn't judge the accuracy of the allegations. So if he doesn't have a conclusion, there can't be an honest belief. And finally, regarding Mr. Scarborough's termination, the district court talked about what Mr. Kerr called the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, Mr. Scarborough's conversation with a coworker about the possibility that a regional marketing manager might be removed from their position soon. Now, setting aside any arguments about whether Mr. Scarborough really did anything wrong here, Mr. Kerr's own testimony establishes that this conversation was with a friend was not uh, sufficient alone to warrant termination. And Mr. Kerr says all these other proffered reasons, reasons that a jury could find pretextual, also inform that decision to terminate. And I would like to point out, if I could, uh, the standard, the controlling standard for causation for MWA claims. That standard is articulated in McGrath v. TCF Savings Bank FSB, which is cited on page 37 of our brief. Under this causation standard, there's no same decision defense. An employee is not required to show that every asserted reason for the adverse action was a pretext, and the employee is not required to prove but for causation. Instead, the employee need only have evidence from which a jury could find that the decision was motivated at least in part by the illegitimate reason. And this causation standard is important here because there's substantial evidence from which a jury can infer retaliatory animus, as well as substantial evidence of the other asserted reasons for Mr. Scarborough's termination being a pretext. And thus, a jury could conclude that even if Mr. Scarborough did this, you know, called his friend and scared him and that sort of thing, that that that's that's fine. The uh, termination was nevertheless motivated in part by uh, his protected conduct. And we accordingly request the court reverse dismissal on summary judgment and remand for trial. And I'll reserve the, my short remaining time for rebuttal. Thank you. Very well. Thank you for your argument. Mr. Stenmo, we'll hear from you. You'll need to turn on your microphone first. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Uh, may it please the court, counsel, even if you assume that Mr. Scarborough's statements are reports, all three of them, it was his multiple instances of intervening misconduct that got him fired, any one of which would have been sufficient to get him terminated. And the court doesn't have to determine if Mr. Scarborough, in fact, engaged in any of that misconduct, as long as Mike Kerr had an honest belief that Scarborough had engaged in that misconduct, and there's no evidence to suggest otherwise. All you have to do is look at the final precipitating event, a key pivotal moment in this case, which was secretly recorded by Mr. Scarborough and part of this record, 224. So after Mr. Scarborough gets a written warning about his honesty and integrity, he's for additional misconduct. He calls up Christopher Terry out of the blue and false tells him he's next to get fired. And this wasn't the first time that he'd been spreading false gossip and rumors. That kind of rumor mongering by a senior leader of the organization who's supposed to be a role model for honesty and integrity is intolerable. Uh, Mr. Scarborough says that this was trivial. Well, it certainly wasn't trivial. It's Christopher Terry who was completely unnerved by uh, the incident and believed he was going to get fired. Uh, and it was trivial to Mike Kerr who talked to Christopher Terry and after that decided to fire Scarborough on the spot. And Scarborough falsely telling Christopher Terry he's going to get fired has nothing to do with Freddie Johnson. 
Scarborough falsely telling Christopher Terry he would get fired it has nothing to do with Mike Pennington, but it has everything to do with Scarborough's honesty and integrity and, and at so many levels. And as this court does not sit at the super personnel department, uh, it was uh, Federated's decision to decide how they wanted to treat that uncontroverted in the record. And it was Mike Kerr, and Mike Kerr alone who decided to terminate Scarborough's employment. He didn't support Mike Pennington. Mike Pennington wasn't involved in the decision to fire Scarborough. Mike Pennington wasn't even Scarborough's supervisor at the time. It was Scarborough's repeated misconduct. And the district court has so ruled twice. And if there's any doubt why Scarborough was fired, simply look at the binding admissions that he made in his Missouri lawsuit where he says that Mike Pennington and Braxton Weaver and Johnson made these false allegations about him, and that's what caused him to get fired. In Scarborough's own words, those comments to Mike Kerr caused him to get fired, nothing else. And if you look at uh, two, I think, critically important cases, um, it's, it's Mervine versus Plant Engineering, which is an A Circuit case from 2017, which is remarkably similar to the case. And also the Maine versus Ozark Health case, which uh, Judge Colleton, you were a part of the panel on, it was decided in May of 2020. Um, this is really Scarborough's fourth bite at the apple. Um, he, he was dismissed at the district court, uh, went up to the Eighth Circuit, you remanded to take another look at this in light of a Freelander, and we're back up here again after uh, uh, Judge Frank granted summary judgment. Again, we got the Missouri dismissal. So we believe it's time to put an end to this. Um, I, I want to talk quickly about uh, the Mervine case and the um, uh, Ozark Health case because I think they're critically important. In the Mervine case, it's very similar to this case. Uh, it was affirming a summary judgment from a Minnesota whistleblower case. In that instance, uh, the plaintiff stated that he believed the supervisor's proposal was illegal double billing. He was three weeks later. But like Scarborough, it was discovered that Mervine displayed a lack of professionalism, made statements that caused plant engineering employees to question their job security, discussed private employee information in the presence of others. And like Scarborough, he, uh, Mervine threatened to retaliate against one of his accusers, stating, I'm going to get that bitch for complaining to HR. Just like Mr. Scarborough did in his conversations that he recorded, where he said he was, going to, he was out to get Mr. Pennington, he was going to be used expletive deleted to, uh, uh, to uh, retaliate against him. And like Scarborough, Merv Mervine denied most of the allegations. And the court has that those comments were protected activity. But this court found that any inference of a causal relationship by a temporal connection was undermined by the intervening events. And this court noted in determining whether a plaintiff has produced sufficient evidence of pretext key question is not whether the stated basis for termination was actually occurred, but whether the defendant believed it to have occurred. And going on further, this court said, the question, however, is not whether he actually engaged in the con contact or conduct for which he was terminated, but whether the employer in good faith believed that he was guilty of the conduct justifying the discharge. Now, the um, Ozark Health case uh, from May of this year, Judge Colleton's um, opinion, this involved a health worker, and uh, she was fired for 
uh, raising her voice and being rude and obnoxious in, in a meeting, and she claimed it was because of her whistleblowing. And the court said in, in that case, uh, much like Mr. Scarborough does, says Maine's reliance on her own testimony and the testimony of others to so, show that she was not rude or inappropriate at the Athena meeting indicates that she misunderstands what it means to prove the falsity of the employer's explanation. If an employer, in explaining a termination, says it believed that the employee violated company rules, then proof that the employee never violated company rules does not show that the employer's explanation was false. That proof shows only that the employer's belief was mistaken. To prove that the employer's explanation was false, the employee must show that the employer did not truly believe the employee violated company rules. And the court goes on to say, therefore, while a plaintiff may establish pretext by showing that the employer did not truly believe the employee engaged in the conduct justifying termination, a plaintiff may not establish pretext simply by showing that the employer's honest belief was erroneous, unwise, or even unfair. This is true regardless of whether the employer's explanation is based on firsthand knowledge or third-party reports. So it's, it's our view that the Mervine case and the Ozark Health case are simply determinative of, of this, this case on the honest belief. Uh, well, they state the law. We're familiar with the cases, but why don't you address how they apply to the record here? Yes. So in this case, um, you know, first they don't have evidence, direct evidence, because the August 4th warning letter confirms that it wasn't based on his complaints. It was based on his denying his complicity in the Freddie Johnson matter, which is Appendix 179 to 180. And taking a look at the admissions in his Missouri lawsuit also shows why he was terminated. So I think that uh, neutralizes any claim of discriminatory animus. Mike Kerr was the decision maker. He and uh, Mr. Scarborough ad admits that. And all the, the stuff that they say about Mike Pennington having some sort of animus toward uh, Mr. Scarborough doesn't impact what Mike Kerr honestly believed about what happened. Mike Kerr believed that Scarborough was complicit in the Freddie Johnston scheme. It had been uh, confirmed from three sources, Pennington, Johnston, and Braxton. Braxton Weaver also uh, said that he had engaged in unethical conduct. Scarborough got aggressive with his management and acted unprofessionally, and that's uh, confirmed by CARES uh, contemporaneous notes at Appendix 182. Uh, he, Scarborough got a warning letter, and then he calls up Johnston's marketing reps and falsely tells them that Johnston's getting moved out and there's going to be other changes, and that's Appendix 189. And then Scarborough cheats on his expense report um, for charging personal expenses. And after he got caught, he wrote Federated to Check, which is at Appendix 195. And then he gets demoted for acting unprofessionally, falsifying his expenses, pocketing crews, gift cards, and credit card miles, spreading false rumors, and engaging in other uh, conduct that calls into question his integrity. And this is confirmed by Mike's, Mike Kerr's talking points at Appendix 201 and 202. And then we have the final precipitating event. After he gets the warning letter, after he gets the demotion, he again engages in destructive rumor mongering. And there's no question about that he did it. You've got, you got the recording there. It's Appendix 224. And as I said, it, it wasn't trivial. Christopher Terry didn't think it was trivial. He was scared to death he was going to lose his job. And uh, it wasn't trivial to Mike Kerr. 
Um, and even Mr. Scarborough suggested that it wasn't trivial to him. He said that he had to call up, uh, 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 he had to call Christopher Terry and tell him because this was really important information. Well, it was false information. He was rumor mongering. So to suggest that this was trivial is just wrong. And at the end of the day, uh, under the honest belief standard, uh, Mr. Kirk could be completely wrong about all this stuff. And there's no evidence that he didn't believe that, that Mr. Scarborough had engaged in that conduct. Um, and the secretly recorded conversations, it's interesting that, that those true, uh, they reveal his true motives about what he was trying to do. He was trying to get back at Mike Pennington. He was retaliating against Mike Pennington. And interestingly, none of these alleged reports that Mr. Scarborough has alleged show up on any of these 114 recordings. You would think that out of 114 recordings that there would be some evidence of that, and there is none. And again, take a look at the, the allegations which are binding on admissions on Mr. Scarborough in the Missouri case. Uh, this court has said that allegations in the complaint are binding admissions. Admissions and pleadings are judicial admissions and binding on the party. He says in those in his complaint that Mike Kerr was the chief decision maker, that he was fired because of statements that Braxton Weaver, Freddie Johnston, and Mike Scarborough told uh, Mike Kerr about, and that's what caused him to lose his job. He says nothing in there about, well, I was fired because of some of these other reasons. So just you just have to look at Mr. Scarborough's own uh, admissions in the Missouri case. With regard to pretext, it's a high burden. The plaintiff has to show retaliatory animus. He has to show that Mike Kerr had it out for uh, Mr. Scarborough, and he has no evidence of that. He talks a lot about Mike Pennington and Freddie Johnson, but the decision maker, Mike Kerr, had no retaliatory animus. And uh, again, take a look at the Missouri admissions, uh, what, what he says there. With regard to pretext, he cites to Mike Jenkins, who's not a comparator because he's not similarly situated in all respects. He claims that Federated didn't follow its own policies, but Kerr, in fact, did personally speak to Scarborough shortly after um, he sent the email. And uh, this conspiracy theory involving um, uh, Pennington completely ignores that Pennington wasn't his supervisor at the time he got fired. Pennington wasn't consulted by uh, Mike Kerr before he got fired. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's his allegations in the Missouri lawsuit. It's what Kerr honestly believed about what misconduct that uh, Mr. Scarborough had engaged in that led to his termination. On this record, no reasonable jury could find for Mr. Scarborough. Uh, they just couldn't. Um, and based on a binding precedent in the Mervine case and the uh, Ozark um, uh, health case, we believe that Judge Frank's summary judgment should be uh, affirmed in this instance. Uh, counsel, uh, do you have any quarrel with the district court's holding that the July 30 communications constituted a report? Um, you know, for the purposes of, of this argument, I, I don't think it matters. Uh, we could we could even uh, concede for the sake of argument that, that it was a report. It, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day... I guess my uh, question is whether you do concede it. I didn't see anything in the, in the uh, briefs that, that uh, raised the issue. 
Yeah, uh, we, we don't believe that it, that it is a report, but you, you don't even have to go there because he doesn't pass causation and he doesn't get past pretext. So it's, it would be unnecessary to even address that issue. Why do you think it's not a report? Uh, well, because he, he's just talking about uh, that, that uh, uh Mr. Johnson likes things nice and fancy. And in fact, it wasn't Mr. Scarborough who uncovered this alleged fraud or this fraud from Freddie Johnson. It was, it was actually, um, you know, two people within Federated um, who discovered. Oh, hold on. The I, thought the, I thought the nice and fancy was July 7, but July 30 was the tax. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, July 30 is tax. First, there's there's no evidence he even actually said that, and, and secondly, um, it, it's not a it's not a violation of of the law. In fact, I think even Mr. Scarborough said that uh, nobody could say that Federated did anything wrong with that in that regard. So I I don't think that that report was even uh, constitutes a report under the whistleblower. All right. Thank you for your argument. Yes. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Redden, we'll hear from you in rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, we obviously have substantial disagreement with Federated's characterization of the record and whether it is characterizing the record in the light most favorable to Mr. Scarborough and giving him the benefit of all reasonable inferences. And those are detailed in our rebuttal. Uh, that we submitted to the court. But I'll give a couple examples. One is claiming that these intervening events were misconduct. For example, uh, this claim that he cheated on his expenses. There's substantial evidence that he, what he did was not cheating and that it wasn't misconduct. Uh, so that makes it an issue for the jury. Another example is when he says that this was not the first time Mr. Scarborough engaged in rumor mongering. In his deposition, Mike Kerr did not point to prior rumor mongering as a basis for any of his decisions. Uh, opposing counsels talked about uh, Mr. Scarborough's conversations with people other than Mr. Kerr and Mr. Pennington. They weren't parties to those conversations. That wasn't a basis for their decisions. Did uh, Now, the question of the uh, honest belief doctrine, I think, is, is key in this case. Uh, it, but, you know, the thing is that, you know, if a person says, well, this is what I honestly believe, uh, the Eighth Circuit uh, precedent says that there's got to be some evidence to support that that was a reasonably considered uh, and supported decision. And it is not for the reasons that we've pointed out. And finally, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, Mr. Pennington. Mr. Pennington was heavily involved in the decision to demote Mr. Scarborough, which is clearly an adverse action, and was also heavily involved in the decision to issue the written warning, which is an adverse action under the Minnesota Whistleblower Act. Uh, and Mr. Kerr specifically said that it, the termination did not arise so solely because of, uh, you know, this conversation with a friend, but it was the straw that broke the camel's back, which ties in all those other things. And so for that, I see I'm out of time. And unless the court has any questions, I appreciate the opportunity. Very well. Thank you to both counsel for your arguments. The case is submitted and the court will file an opinion in due course.